I want to ask you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Hebrews. Today we're going to begin a study in the book of Hebrews, one of the most difficult uh, books to interpret and explain in all of Scripture. And I'm going to try to keep it as simple as I can because I need that for myself. Someone has said that uh, studying the book of Hebrews is kind of like eating catfish. When you come to a bone, you pick it out, you lay it aside, but you keep eating the fish. You don't throw the fish away just because you came to a bone. Now, there's some things in this book that are difficult to explain, but there is so much truth in this book that we need to understand because in this book, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the sufficiency of Christ. And he mentions a number of things throughout this book of fears and anxieties and frustrations and temptations that we deal with in our Christian life when if we're not careful, we'll fall apart and we'll give up. And so what I want us to do in looking at the book of Hebrews is I'm going to sanctify and baptize a song by the Beatles. Somebody needs to. When I was growing up in the 60s, the Beatles were it. Everybody wanted to get a Beatles haircut. Every parent prayed that they would all not get a Beatles haircut. I've been amazed that the Beatles one CD has now sold nearly 40 million copies worldwide. A group that is not recorded since 1970 has sold more albums in the year 2001 than any group in history. Now that's phenomenal. That album has gone around the world and been number one in 28 countries in the world at one time. Thank God somebody finally beat Thriller. But there's a song that the Beatles did, which was a part of one of the movies that they did, called Help. And I want to read you the words to this song because if you're like me, there are times when these words have been very appropriate in my relationship with the Lord. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now these days are gone. I'm not so self-assured. Finally changed my mind, <laughs> finally, and opened up the door. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate your being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? Now, I don't know what John Lennon and Paul McCartney meant by that when they wrote it. I'd like to have the royalties off of it. I don't know what they meant by that when they wrote it, but I know this. There have been times when I thought I was bulletproof and self-assured. And God would allow circumstances to come in my life or events to come in my life, and all of a sudden, I wasn't bulletproof anymore, and I wasn't self-assured, and I was down, and I needed help. And I needed someone to come to my rescue. Now, many people in this world look to drugs and alcohol to do that, or they look to an illicit relationship to do that. They will look outside of Christ and anywhere but Christ to find the answers to the needs of their life. But I want you to notice, beginning in the book of Hebrews, that the writer of Hebrews tells us specifically who we can go to in times when we need help. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Let's look at the background, if we could, of this book, which will help us to understand why this letter was written to these believers. The recipients of the book were primarily Hebrew converts, Jewish believers in Christ. The book was probably written somewhere before the destruction of the temple, which would have made it somewhere around 60 to 65 A.D. In 49 A.D., Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. During that time, persecution of the church was beginning to rise. Death threats were on the rise. Uh, adversity was rising. The church was in a time of turmoil. These primarily Hebrew converts were beginning to waver in their faith. They had walked an aisle and made a profession of faith and had joined the church, but somewhere in the process they had begun to think, you know, maybe I, I just don't know if I want to go through this. I, I thought my life would get better and I wouldn't have any problems if I got saved, and now I find out I've still got problems. And now I've got persecution on top of that. So maybe I'll just back off. Some were thinking about reverting back to Judaism. Others were thinking about falling into some of the perversions of the gospel, like the Judaizers who said you had to be a Jew and then a Christian, or the legalists, and, and people were calling for their attention and saying, you know, you don't have to be this committed. You don't have to walk this close with God. You don't have to pay this kind of price. And so the writer writes to deal in a time of persecution and turmoil and strife to say that Jesus Christ you need to get your focus back on him. Now, those are the recipients. Let's talk, about, let's talk about what brought that about. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this what's going on in their lives. This is what is happening with them. Hebrews chapter 10, he refers to the fact that they have already paid a price for their faith. So he implies by that, if you've already paid a price, why are you thinking about backing down now? You've gotten this far why quit now? Hebrews 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, after being saved, coming to the knowledge of Christ, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The writer says that some of these people have already suffered. They've had their property taken away from them. Others have just been there to care for people who were suffering, knowing that they could possibly end up in the same situation. Now, the author of the book is unknown. We are pretty sure that Paul did not write this. Uh, Paul wrote most of his letters in Greek, and this is written originally in Hebrew, translated into Greek. This is probably not a Pauline letter. It is likely that it was written by Luke. If that is the case, then Luke, having been the author of the Gospel of Luke, 
and the book of Acts becomes the second biggest writer of our New Testament information that we have about Christ. But there's a probability that this book was written by Barnabas or Apollos. Whoever wrote this book had an incredible understanding of the Hebrew culture, thus would have been a converted Jew. And so probably Barnabas or Apollos wrote this book. But it was written to Jewish Christians. Now the theme of the book is the absolute supremacy of Christ. Whatever issue comes up, whatever problem arises, the writer is telling us that the supremacy of Christ is revealed in that he is the mediator of God's grace. There is no book in all the New Testament that reveals the supremacy of Jesus Christ more than the book of Hebrews. It tells us that he is our help in time of need. Now, that's good news for these people because they're beginning to ask themselves the question, does God really care? Does God really know? If God cares and if God knows, why isn't he protecting us? Why isn't he shielding us from these problems? Why do we keep having adversity? Why is this persecution? If God's as powerful as we've been led to believe he is, then why isn't he intervening on our behalf? The writer of Hebrews comes to say he already has, and he is. He will reveal Jesus Christ as the great high priest who is living to make intercession on behalf of those people. He will reveal Jesus in a number of ways as the all-sufficient supreme Christ. Now, here's the problem. These people were responding the same way that some of us respond. In a world that asks the same questions without a relationship with Christ, they were saying, I think so, or I hope so, instead of I know so. You and I have a no-so salvation, and we have no-so answers according to the Word of God. And we don't need to quiver in our feet or, or quake in our faith and say, I, I'm not real sure, I, I think God can come through, and I think God's on the throne, and I think God's sovereign, but I'm not really sure about that. The writer of Hebrews writes to say, we need to say, I know-so. I know who sits on the throne of heaven, and I know who's in charge, and I know that he is supreme and that he is sovereign. The second thing we want to look at this morning is when God speaks, he doesn't stutter. Hebrews 3, verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today, if you are here and do not know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and the Spirit of God begins to speak to you, and you hear not only an audible voice from me, but you hear a voice from God speaking to your heart that Jesus Christ is what you've been looking for. The Scripture would say to you today, do not harden your heart. Don't say, I'll have another time. There'll be another opportunity. I'll put this off. I'll think about it. When God's Spirit speaks to you, respond to what He says to you and respond immediately today. Right now, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. What this book is going to tell you is how to get right and then how to stay right. How to get right with God and then how to stay right with God. Now let's pick up in verse 1. Verse 1, the first word in every translation, including your English translation, is the word God. The writer doesn't begin with introducing himself. 
he puts God at the first word in the first paragraph on the first page. He wants there to be no doubt that God is the one who is going to be ministering to them, that God is the one who is going to be speaking to them, and he puts him at the head of the line, and all of the rest that he says is built on the foundation of that one word, God. Now notice what he says. God, after he spoke long ago. Now that phrase means that he's referring back to all the times that God spoke in the Old Testament, up through Malachi. Between the book of Malachi and the revelation of Jesus Christ and the birth of Jesus Christ, there's 400 years of silence. For 400 years, the people of God did not have a prophet. They didn't have any word from God. They didn't have any new letters written to them. God was silent for 400 years. And so when the writer says that God, after he spoke long ago, he's conveying the fact that God has spoken, but for the last 400 years, he has been silent. But at the birth of Jesus, he spoke again. Now, how did he speak? In many portions and in many ways. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. So God spoke through creation. God spoke through prophets. He has spoken through visions and through dreams. He has spoken through the written word. He has spoken in a burning bush, through thunder, through a still small voice, through direct oracles, through psalms, through poetry, through judgments, through the law, through sacrifice. God has spoken in many portions and in many ways through different kinds of people. The amazing thing about the Bible is it's not written by scholars. Some of the people who wrote the books of the Bible were kings. Some were shepherds. Other were just common people. Some were prophets. Some were priests. But the book written by various people at various backgrounds over hundreds of years comes to a central message. God spoke in portions, he says, which means that God didn't finish his message with Malachi, that the Word of God was to be completed. One message pointing to a Messiah who would come, but that Messiah had not come yet. Now, he says in verse 2, in these last days, God's been silent for 400 years, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Now, that Greek word really means in son or by son. Uh, it's just it's so emphatic in the Greek what he is saying here. The emphasis is that Jesus Christ is the summation of the revelation of God, that you do not go past him, beyond him, around him, or add to him, that he is not just a prophet. He is not just a priest. He is not just a teacher. He is God's prophet, God's priest, and God's king. He is the fulfillment of every promise of Messiah given in the Old Testament. And when he comes to this, he says Jesus is the ultimate final communicator. Now somebody may knock on your door one day or tell you that God revealed himself to somebody in America one day. That's a lie from hell. There's no other way to put it. God's Word says He has spoken in finality in these last days through His Son. You add anything to Jesus, you take away from who Jesus is. You do not add to Jesus. You do not put an amendment on Him. He is the complete 
revelation of God. Now, that may offend people, but I would rather offend them and see them come to Christ than to be quiet about it and let them go to hell believing a lie. God's Word says that Jesus Christ is the final revelation. And anybody who tells you any differently is a member that is trying to teach something that is not contained in the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God wrote himself into man's life. God has spoken to us in Son, the summation of his revelation. He has spoken to us. That's aorist tense, by the way, in the Greek. If you want to get into a good Greek argument with somebody, the aorist tense always speaks of finality. He did not say God is speaking to us, present tense, so that means he may continue to keep on speaking some other way. He said God has spoken, end of discussion. You don't have to debate it. You don't have to argue it. You just have to stand on it. God has spoken, aorist tense, finality. It is established. There's no new revelation coming. Now, when the Scripture uses this term, he's not only talking about Jesus as his son in a divine relationship, the word means a divine equality. You see, it would help people who are blinded by deception if they would just get a book out and start studying what these words mean in the original language, not what somebody's trying to tell them they mean. These words mean the word his son does not just mean that, oh, God the Father and God the Son. It means that Jesus is of divine equality with God the Father. It does not say that anywhere in the Word of God or any revelation by God that anyone would come after Jesus who would be of divine equality with God the Father. God is very emphatic here. He doesn't want any confusion. Number three, what the Son has done for others, He wants to do for you. What God's Son has done for other people, He wants to do for you. Now, look at what He says in verse 2 whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we talked in our first Sunday in this building about Charles Spurgeon beginning the Metropolitan tabernacle ministry in 1862 with a text out of the book of Acts on preaching Jesus. Just as though you know, he didn't change his message. 20 years later in 1882 on May 21st, Spurgeon stood up in his church and said, I have nothing to do tonight but to preach Jesus Christ. That's all God's ever given us to preach. God has not given us to preach the forms and designs of this world. God has given us to preach the Word of God in Jesus Christ, Acts 5.42. They kept right on preaching Jesus as the Christ, Acts 8.5. Philip proclaimed Christ, Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian, Acts chapter 9 and verse 20. Paul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, 2 Corinthians 4.5. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. The message of the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. It's not denominations. It's not even doctrine. It's not methods. It's not style. The message of the church is the person of Jesus Christ as Lord. And when you and I realize that, we want other people to share in that with us. 
Now, here's why that's difficult for us. When we take Christ seriously, we cannot afford to take our faith casually. And if we're not serious about the message of Jesus Christ, then we will not take serious our responsibility to tell people that Jesus Christ is the only way. I've done way too many funerals and talked to too many people. When you ask them, is your loved one saved? Did your loved one have a relationship with Christ? I don't know. I've talked to people who were married for 50 years who the wife never asked the husband and the husband never asked the wife. They just assumed. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him for forgiveness of sin? I had a lady say to me one time whose husband died after 52 years of marriage, well, we didn't ever talk about that. I thought, how in the world can you sleep in a bed and have children and eat together and go on vacation and live in the same house together and you don't know right now for sure whether your husband is in heaven or hell? How can that happen? Somebody say, well, because faith is a private matter. No, it's not. Faith is not a private matter. It's not something you hide in a closet. Faith is something to be proclaimed. If faith was a private matter, then we just built this building so that we could all come in here and just love on one another. But faith is a public matter, which means we built this to make room for people that we could say to them what Jesus has done for us, he can do for you. He can change your life. He can move into your life and take control of your situation. It is a serious thing to be casual about your faith. You and I need to be serious about our faith. We cannot take it lightly. We cannot take it flippantly. It is life or death. Everyone we meet is either headed for hell or headed for heaven. Every person in Albany, Georgia. There's news in the paper this week about the, the flight of people to Lee County. I want to tell you something, folks. Some people are running from reality because it's a lot easier to run from reality than it is to face reality. And reality is not bad. Living in la-la land is what's bad. Thinking that the world is supposed to be Disneyland. And I want to tell you, you can't run and you can't hide from the problems of this world. You can't. I don't care if it's about what neighborhood you live in, what city you live in, or how close you are to your mother-in-law. You cannot run far enough to get away from your problems. God made internet and long-distance phone calls so your mother-in-law can stay in touch with you. God wants us to share what he is doing in our lives. And God has given us a message, and this book says to a world of believers, tell other people that they don't have to get hung up with fears and with doubts and with anxieties, that they don't have to look outside of Christ to find an answer to their problems. They can find the solutions to the problems of their life in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to give an aspirin. He didn't come to give a pep talk. He didn't come to say, keep up the good work. Jesus came to say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So there are a couple of things I want us to look at. First of all, don't apologize for saying he's the only way. Don't apologize for saying he's the only way. I remember when we lived in uh, Kansas City, and uh, a particular group... Uh, came to our door on uh, Sunday morning. We had had service early and we were home early. 
and they came to our door on a Sunday morning. And in a conversation with these two people at our door, this is kind of what came out. Well, we like to visit on Sunday because that's when we find all the Baptists at home. And we figure if their faith is not meaningful enough to them to get up and go to church, then maybe we've got a faith we can offer them. I'll tell you something, folks. A lot of people are going to go to hell in Albany, Georgia because Baptists were scared of rain and couldn't get out of bed. And our witness, every time you stay home because it's a little inconvenient, every time you stay home from church on Sunday morning or Sunday night, you say to your lost neighbors, my God's not important enough to give a day to. And you say to them, it's not important, and by you not saying anything to them about their faith, you're saying to them, you don't need what I have. We need to say Jesus is the only way. If you have needs, if you need help, you go to the throne of grace. Now, in verses 2 through 4, the writer gives six distinctive characteristics of Christ. We're only going to look at two or three of them. First of all, he talks about Christ is the radiance of his glory. That phrase indicates majesty or omnipotence. It does not mean, now this is important because some people will say, something different but this word in the original language does not mean that Jesus is the reflected light of the glory of God it means he is the resplendent light of the glory of God he is the source of the light of the glory of God if there were no Jesus listen now you're gonna have to you're gonna have to chew on this one for a while if there were no Jesus there would be no God did you hear me? This way means yes. Did you understand what I just said? If Jesus is not God, there is no God. If Jesus Christ is not the reflection of the radiance of the glory of God, there is no God in heaven. All the promises of the Bible are lies. We believe falsehood if Jesus is not God. Anybody that tells you Jesus is not God is telling you there is no God. And then the atheists are right. He also says that the light is inseparable from the source. The radiance of his glory means he's inseparable from it. The exact representation of his nature. That word means to, is used to describe a tool that engraves a coin. Jesus is the exact representation of God, the exact image of God. He is the very God of very God. He's not a part of God. He laid aside his deity to come to earth, but he did not lay aside his Godhead. He is God of God, very God of very God. He is also, he says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. The word means to carry. It means that Jesus Christ is carrying all things along. All this world is being carried along by God until it reaches the end, the climax, the finish that we've read about in the book of Revelation. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says, By him all things hold together. We're worried. we got so many people worried about the ozone layer and El Nino and, you know, everything else, and, you know, the heat wave, and it's hot when it's supposed to be cold and cold when it's supposed to be hot, and everybody's trying to figure out, and they're trying to plot it out, and, you know, they're saying, you know, it's a, it's a global warming. You realize how cold it's been in Albany, Georgia this year during global warming? You know what? I don't care who they are. 
I don't care how many degrees they've got, and I don't care how good their computer is. They don't have it figured out. The Scripture says Jesus is carrying this world along until it reaches its final conclusion. He is the one who holds it together. If he were not holding it together, it'd come apart at the seams. You say, well, it looks like it is now. Well, one day when he removes his spirit from this world, it will. It will literally cave in on itself. Now, not only don't apologize for saying he's the only way, don't apologize for preaching the blood of Jesus. Don't apologize for preaching the blood of Jesus. Wayne Watson sang the other night a song about the blood of Jesus. Notice that it says, he made purification of sins. Now, the prophets preached atonement, redemption, salvation. But Jesus provided it. He died on our behalf. The wages of sin is death, and a substitute had to be found or else we would have to die to pay the price for our sins and experience the second death, the Scripture calls it. But an adequate, pure substitute was found, a once-for-all sacrifice to die for our sins, and that substitute was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died and provided the sacrifice. He is the source from which we find our cleansing. Jesus didn't come to make us feel good. He did not come to improve our manners. He did not come to give us food for thought. He came to die. He came to set us free. Now, we live in a world where absolutes are going out the window. That's why nobody respects the government. That's why nobody respects the law. That's why nobody wants God's Word anywhere because we don't want absolutes in our society. And there are people in control in our society who tell us we need to be tolerant of all viewpoints. And we need to look at things from all sides. Well, Jesus looked at everything from all sides and said, there's only one way you're going to get out of this mess, and that's if I die for you. Jesus looked at every possible option for man, and there was no option except that he come and he die for your sins and for mine. And we should not apologize for the blood of Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, what that means is, Jesus was given the place of ultimate authority. The right hand of the throne was considered the place of ultimate authority, of power. Jesus got the place of ultimate authority. Why? Go back. Because he made purification of sins. He got ultimate authority because of his ultimate humility. Jesus Christ had ultimate authority, and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He concluded his work of purifying us of sin. So now he is seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. His work has just changed. He has gone from saving us by dying for us to interceding for us now that we're saved. And so what do you need to do today? First of all, if you are lost today, you need to acknowledge Jesus Christ. You need to acknowledge your sin. You need to acknowledge that you need Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, you may be still singing that Beatles song, you know, and you may still be younger, and you may still have it all figured out, but I'm going to tell you, you're going to hit a wall one day, you're going to hit an obstacle, or your spouse is going to walk out on you, or the doctor's going to give you a bad report, or you're going to be overwhelmed by fear one day, or you're going to have a panic attack one day, or you're going to find yourself in a situation that you can't control, or they're going to hand you a pink slip one day. Something's going to happen in your life, and you're going to hit bottom. 
I want to tell you, the answer is not going to be found in a bottle and it's not going to be found in pills. The answer is not going to be found in going to a secular humanist counselor who tells you you need to meditate on your navel more often. The answer is going to be found when you turn and find Jesus Christ. And wouldn't it be better to find him before those things happen than to find him after those things happen? That you allow a crisis that you've allowed to build in your life because you wouldn't trust Christ to bring you to the point where now you finally trust him. You will not find anybody in this room that has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that would ever say to you, I wish I'd waited longer to get saved. I wish I'd lived in sin a little longer. I wish I'd lived in defeat and in frustration and in fear and in bondage a lot longer. I wish I'd waited longer and had more fun. Their lives have been scarred by sin. I've never met anybody who said, I wish I'd waited longer. I've met a lot of people who said, I wish I'd done it sooner. Save themselves from a lot of headaches and a lot of heartaches. If you're saved today, you need to trust Jesus Christ who makes you clean before God. You cannot clean yourself up. You cannot make yourself better. You cannot make yourself good enough. The Scripture says that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. You will never be good enough to be saved. You just have to admit that you're bad enough that you need it. None of us in this room were good enough to be saved. I don't care what our background, what our heritage, or what our social standing. None of us were good enough to be saved. It was when we admitted that we were sinners in need of a Savior that Christ came in and changed our lives. Today, in just a moment, when we sing a song of invitation, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are and to come down this aisle and to find one of our ministers and say to them, today I need to trust Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. You may not even understand all that that means. We'll help you to understand it. But if there's a void and a vacuum in your life today, then I want to encourage you to not sit there a moment longer. The minute we begin to sing, you step out and you come. Now, Christians, let me tell you what we need to do. If we are Christians, if we are saved, we must address the danger of drifting. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 2. Let me tell you why we become irreverent. Let me tell you why we become casual about our worship. Let me tell you why we become flippant about our faith, why we don't get concerned about things and why our lives fall down into mediocrity and a carnality. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. You're telling me that after I get saved, I've got to pay more attention? You're right. You've got to pay more attention now than the day you heard the word and you got saved. I had somebody say to me this week that, that there are people in, the, in their 60s and 70s they don't want to learn anymore. Well, I want to tell you something. There are people in their 60s and 70s leaving their husbands and wives and going off with other people because they're not paying attention because they're not listening to the Word of God. You never get too old to learn. As long as God's given you a brain and a mind, you need to be paying attention. Don't tempt God. Don't test God. Don't play games with the Word. Don't play games with the Spirit. Don't play games with the authority of God's Word. Don't play games with what He's doing. He says, you better pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. Remember these Jewish believers were in danger of abandoning their faith, drifting away from God, backsliding into apathy or error. Backsliding. I've got a funny feeling there are people in this room today that are backslidden. 
You may come to church and you may dress up and you may carry your Bible and you may bring an offering today, but in your heart of hearts, you've not been paying attention to the Spirit of God. It's been a long time since God's Spirit has spoken to you. It's been a long time since you've been stirred. It's been a long time since you've wept over someone. It's been a long time since you've had a burden. It's been a long time since you asked God to break your heart over the condition of this world. It's been a long time since you had a passion for the things of God. You've kind of coasted along. You've kind of rocked along, just floated along, and drifted like a raft going out to sea, being slowly taken out by the tide. You've been taken away from the things of God. You still come. You're still here. You still stand up. You still sit down. You still walk into a room. You still read your Sunday school lesson. But God's not speaking anymore. Pay close attention. Don't you miss it. I've asked God today to give me the ability to communicate to you that some of you are on dangerous ground spiritually. If you do not start paying attention, you're going to lose your marriage. If you don't start paying attention, you're going to lose your health. If you don't start paying attention, you're going to lose your witness. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your children because you've not paid attention to the things of God. You've come and sat in a church where the Word is preached, where the Bible is taught, where the Spirit is prayed that He would come, where there's powerful prayer, and you've ignored it. And you've built up a resistance system and an immune system that keeps you from being stirred by the Spirit of God. I'm saying to you, I'm begging you today, don't be deaf to what God's trying to say to you. It is to your spiritual detriment that you do so. I think if some churches heard what we've heard through the years and the people that we've heard and the blessings that we've been able to get, they would have repented by now. The danger of being in a church like this is you hear it so much, it just starts rolling off. And you forget God didn't save you for you to give Him your opinion. God saved you for you to humbly serve Him. God saved you for you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want to tell you something, folks. If we're going to be a church on fire, if we're going to be a church where the Holy Spirit has the power to work, then we have got to change the way we think when we come to church. It's not, okay, what you going to do? Okay, we about through? All right, it, when are we going to do something I like? Don't ask God to bless if you're not putting yourself in a position to be blessed. Don't ask God to move if you're not putting yourself in a position to be moved. If you're worried more today, right now, about lunch and about getting to your Sunday school class than you are what's going to happen in the next few minutes, and I am quite aware of the time. It's 1037. Some of you can't stand church. It goes longer than an hour. I don't know what you're going to do when you get to glory if you get there. I wouldn't be so sure that I would make it. You know, if you think you can slip out on God now, what are you going to do after about a million years of praise? You're going to say, you know, Lord, I've heard enough of that. Just let me go to hell. I've had about all this praise and worship and, and word and honor and glory that I can stand. I mean, just, I'd just rather be in hell than do this. Well, you're probably already headed there if you've got that kind of attitude. And yet you may have religion you may have made a decision. You may have been baptized. But you've drifted away from what you heard. I'm saying that there are hundreds of people in this room today that need to get some things right with God. God is not going to send us new people. 
until the people who are already here are the kind of people that he can trust new people with. We've got to be a clean church before God. And I'm well aware of the time. But I also know that Sunday school can start late and God can still meet you there. And so we're going to do business right now. I'm going to ask you to pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. This warning in chapter 2 flows out of chapter 1 because we have such a great salvation. We must never take it lightly or treat it casually. I'm going to ask that just Heather play softly. I'm going to ask we have no singing right now. But I'm going to ask you where you are. If you need to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you say, man, I don't, I don't know if I want to trust Christ. You know, you've been fussing at those people that say they've trusted Christ. Well, you know, every family needs a little fussing every now and then. God disciplines those that he loves. If God's not disciplining us, then we may not love us because we may not be his. He only disciplines his children. If you've drifted away and God's not been disciplining you and God's not been convicting you and God's not been working on you and you're just casual about your faith and nothing's going on that's, uh, that is addressing that in your life, the Spirit's not convicting you, then you have every right to ask yourself, am I really a child of God? I'm going to ask you where you are right now. If you're lost or if you need to make a decision for Christ this morning, we don't have the prayer rails up yet, they'll get up. But I, it may be where you're seated that you need to kneel down on that hard floor. That might do you some good. I don't know if I'd call that suffering for Jesus. But there are people that need to do business today. So I'm going to ask you right now to get up and come. To be saved, to join this church, to come from a backslidden condition and come back to your faith in God. To call out to God for help that you trusted in things that were not worth trusting in. I'm just going to ask you to step out right now. Who will be the first one to come? Thank you for joining us for Path to Truth. If you would like to learn more about Sherwood Baptist Church here in Albany, Georgia, you can explore our website at www.sherwood-baptist.org. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to Path to Truth, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. Once again, that's Path to Truth at 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany, Georgia, zip code 31707. If you're requesting a videotape of the service, please enclose $10 with your order. If you would like an audio tape of the pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your name and complete address along with your telephone number and be sure to ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood and we hope you'll join us next week at this time for Path to Truth from Sherwood Baptist Church.